0: Welcome to Business Resilience Decoded from Disaster Recovery Journal and Asfalis Advisors. Now, here's your host, Vanessa Vaughn-Matthews. Welcome to Business Resilience Decoded. I am your host, Vanessa Vaughn-Matthews, the founder and chief resilience officer of Asfalis Advisors. We have an accomplished guest lined up for you today speaking on the topic of the power of stories. So let's jump right in and meet our guest, Jacinth Galpin, the creator of Ristery.
1: Jacinth, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me today, Vanessa. I'm so excited to talk to you guys.
0: I'm excited. I have my, my amazing friend and uh, you have so much that you can share with our, our listeners today. Can you start by sharing more about your background and how you got into risk?
1: Sure. So, I am from Australia, which I'm guessing your listeners will pick up on very quickly. So, I started my career back in the last century. That's how old I am. 1999, I started at the Australian National Audit Office as an auditor. And it was at that time I started doing audits on risk management and the application of what was then the standard, which was the Australian New Zealand standard, 4396, I think the number was. And I found I really enjoyed it. But it wasn't a passion at that point. I was doing auditing, I was doing statistical work, and I was doing risk as well as part of that audit work. I think it was when I started with one of BP's subsidiaries, Elite Customer Solutions in Melbourne, that I really started to develop an ethos and concept around what risk management ought to be. I had found that risk management at that time, and and still to an extent, even today, 15, 20 years later, that risk management is often seen as a bureaucratic exercise. So you fill in a risk register, and you submit that risk register, and that's risk management. And from the start, I thought, I don't really think that's what risk management ought to be. And I started to develop my, I guess, ethos around what risk management should be, and started to realise that risk management isn't a bad thing. Um or risk isn't a bad thing. It's a combination of both hazard and opportunity. Risk is just the unknown. It's risk management is just the way you respond to the unknown. And I started to develop my principles and guidance as to how I was going to work with risk. I moved into telecommunications for Telstra, which is I guess the Australian equivalent of ATT, before moving to the Department of Justice and Regulation in Australia as their chief risk officer and chief audit executive, also heading up their um, anti-corruption and fraud slash integrity functions. And this is when I really started to mature my approach to risk management and to really move away from the bureaucratic style of risk management that that we so often see in organisations today and move towards what should risk management actually be? And it should be the management of the unknown and the tools and mechanisms that you utilise to manage the unknown. That should be specialised, it should be customised, it should be designed and fit for purpose. In 2016, um, I got bored of living in Australia and my family and (laughs) I packed up and moved to the US. And we came to the US via the diversity lottery, which is an American thing. You won't find it anywhere else in the world. So the US government gives away 55,000 green cards each year to people who are from countries that don't normally immigrate to the US, all with the intent of encouraging diversity. Um, Australians don't typically immigrate to the US in large numbers, maybe two, 3,000 a year. We won the lottery and it literally is a lottery and were able to get green cards. And so moved over here February 2016 and since that time, I have launched Risk Tree, my podcast, and I continue to work for a Fortune 40 retailer.
0: Amazing. So, this is going to sound pretty funny, but is that still a program that our US government has
1: to bring over folks from different countries? it is it is still a program it's not a particularly popular program with either side so democrats republicans are like neither of them particularly like it and it's a curious one all you have to have in order to once you you enter the lottery and your number gets called your your number gets you get lucky and you win But what that does is it it gives you the opportunity to apply for a green card. So you don't actually just win the green card straight out of the gate. You still have to go through a visa application process. And the minimum requirements are that you have a high school education, that you have a clean criminal record, and that you don't have any communicable, very strange diseases. And once you have met all of those requirements, the U.S. government grants you permanent residency. And once you become a resident of the U.S. after five years, you can become a citizen. So I've been here nearly four years. I have one year left before I can take the oath and become a U.S. citizen. Oh, awesome. Well, I hope I'm there to see that. When I become a U.S. citizen, there's going to be a big party. Yeah, yeah, we have to have a party.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, what is RISTERI?
1: So Risk Theory is my podcast, and in a short form, it's around telling the story of uh, risk through the lens of history. So a few years ago, I was at a conference launching the Victorian Government Risk Management Framework. Part of what I was talking about at that conference was around risk culture. So as opposed to using theory and using heavy slides in a PowerPoint presentation, I decided to tell a story about women in war. So the story of how during World War II, and this happened globally, with men going off to war, women stepped into the economic fray and took on roles that men would normally do. And I talked about how that was pure opportunity. These women saw an opportunity, they saw a gap, and they raced towards it. And they really broadened and opened up the concept of women being something other than homemakers, that women could have very fulfilling careers through work. I told this story and... I was mesmerized by the amount of people that emailed me afterwards or came up to me afterwards and said, that was amazing. I loved the way you told the story. And I realized at that point that storytelling could be extraordinarily powerful as a way of expressing theoretical concepts. So I think that in the world of risk management, and I think to a certain extent resilience as well, we often rely on theory to explain our point. I think when we use stories from the past, using real people and using events that people might understand or know of, we create an emotional connection or a social bond between the story and the theory. And that makes our job as practitioners so much easier when we do it. So Risk Theory has been going for nearly three years. It is a weekly podcast, so once a week there will be some kind of event or story or character from history where I talk about their life and times, how they utilised risk management principles and techniques that we use every day, controls and treatment strategies, governance structures, risk registers, and how people utilise that in real time to achieve their objectives. So whether it's Napoleon, who is my favorite historical figure of all time, Napoleon using guerrilla warfare tactics in the first Italian campaign, to more recently the emergence of Amazon and how Jeff Bezos was able to use risk management principles to propel himself forwards. So it's very much a storytelling podcast, it's a historical podcast, but it has very deep roots in the technical application of risk management
0: yes i love that which really takes us into the topic of our podcast the power of stories and so you you already kind of talked about how you discover your skill of communicating stories but help our listeners really understand why this is such an art and the reason why i'm asking so i've had the luxury of seeing dissent in action from a risk and crisis management perspective and then i've also heard from other practitioners that ask the questions about you know, what else do I need to be successful in this industry, and in this discipline, right? And I think the ability to be able to uh, facilitate conversations and tell a story, because the story is what sells, is really an art. And so just want to get some thoughts from you, descend. why is it such an art?
1: I think it's an art because it is rare these days. So when you think about how we take in information, it's a very visual thing. So you think about we read articles on on computer screens, we watch YouTube videos, we watch television. The art of the story is... I wouldn't say it's a lost art, but it's certainly becoming a more rare art. And yet it is one of the most powerful ways to communicate information and for that information to truly resonate. So if we think about just generally in our lives, the tales our grandparents would tell us about their lives, these are the stories that stay with us. They are the stories that mould who we are as individuals and human beings. And so... For me, storytelling is so critical because it creates a bond between the topic and the way our brains work. And human society is entirely driven by social bonds and the strength of those social bonds. So storytelling becomes an art that is, I would say, increasingly rare. But when you do find somebody who can tell stories or who has mastered the art of storytelling, they are compelling people. They are the kind of people that you could sit sit around and listen to all day. And I'm not saying I am that person. I am still working on my craft as a storyteller. I'd like to think that I'm a pretty entertaining storyteller, though. (laughs) But I think it's definitely something that helps resonate. I think that we've, like I said earlier, we've all had those instances where grandparents would sit around and talk about the old days. And I recall as a kid listening to these stories mesmerized because they were stories told in the first person. They were stories told with um, a certain person's unique bias and view of the world. And they're beautiful things. I still tell my boys stories that my grandparents told me. And I have no doubt that my boys will go on and tell people the same stories as well. And it's this beautiful passing down of information and history. And it's almost like the fabric of our human ethos and our human existence. That gets told through stories. Doesn't get told through much else.
0: So just since I've I've heard you also talk about how you communicate the story of risk to a leadership team, how have you seen stories from that perspective bring power to
1: some of the organizations that you've worked with? When I'm presenting to a leadership team or to any audience really, it's about creating an emotional connection with that audience, so that they can understand exactly what I'm getting at. So often when we're talking about risk, we're talking about things that are pretty dry. They may not be the most exciting things in the world. So if I can tell stories through examples, through creating a link between this is the concept and this is why we need to do it. And here's a real life example of what happens if we don't. What that does with the recipient or the listener is it starts to join the dots. It starts to create a story that you can almost see unfolding in real time. The way I always tell stories is to create an idea of why does the story need to be told? So when I'm picking a topic from, for risk theory, and I get a lot of suggestions from people, you should do this topic or you should do that topic. And a lot of them don't make it into the cut for risk Because for me, it's all about adding to the discourse. And why does a story need to be told? I have an author friend who gave me this advice very early on in the podcast when I was selecting topics. And he said, you need to find a reason for this story to exist because that's the only way it has meaning and that's the only way it adds to the discourse. So when I'm talking to leaders, I'm trying to figure out why does the story need to be told in any shape or form? Why does it matter? And once I find that, then I can find my lead-in into how the story needs to be told. And it all makes sense for me. It's almost like a light bulb moment where everything just falls into place and I think, okay, i got it. But then I realize that there's a whole process that goes on subconsciously in my head, getting to that point of, now I figured out why this story needs to be told.
0: I love that. So really understanding what is it that I want this person to do with this information and what is the impact that this story is going to have on this company?
1: That's exactly it. And Vanessa, you and I have had this conversation um, just a couple of weeks ago where we, were, where we were talking about risk registers. And I'd said, you never, ever, ever take a risk register into a leadership meeting. Don't ever do it. Worst thing you could possibly do. And I remember your face looking at me to say... <laughs> I've just been working on this register for two weeks. The reason why I said that is because the risk register doesn't tell a story. Mm -hmm. It's a log. It's a a repository. It it documents things. Where the value for us as practitioners when we're going into senior leaders is telling the story of why that matters. Why does that risk register matter? Tell me the story. And then you can say, well, it matters because if X happens, then this triggers X, Y, Z. And as a result, this is why we should have a force to action. Mm -hmm. coming out of that that story. That's why I'm often sort of transitioning in terms of how do we tell leaders and how do we pick a topic and all those kinds of things. It comes from that idea of how do I tell a story Mm -hmm. and how are the tools that I use to bring in and tell that story.
0: Right. Well, speaking of stories, you have a story of resilience and, you know, leaving a a C-suite role and then um, taking a lottery and moving across the pond to a different country. So from that perspective, how have you used your story of resilience?
1: I think for me, it's a story of reinvention. Because as you said, we had a very comfortable life in Australia. I was um, a C-suite executive. I had reached the point in my career where I very likely didn't need to apply for any more roles. I would get tapped on the shoulder at some point and move into a a new role every four to five years. So to leave that behind was extraordinarily challenging. And I remember a couple of weeks before we were due to leave Australia, I had a complete crisis in terms of what the heck am I doing? I am leaving everything I've worked for the last 15 years behind for something that isn't guaranteed. I had that moment of, I'm not going. I'm just going to stay in Australia and keep on doing what I'm doing. And then I remembered Jeff Bezos. So Jeff Bezos has what he calls the regret minimization framework, which I think is a phenomenally simple decision-making tool. You basically ask yourself one question, will I regret not doing this in 10 years' time? And that's the question Bezos asked himself when he hadn't started Amazon, was working very successfully in New York City and said, if I don't do this, will I regret it in 10 years? And for him, the answer was instant. Of course, I'll regret it. So I'm just going to have to go and do it. And I had the same moment of, if I don't go to the US, will I regret it in 10 years? And instantly, yes. Now, that didn't lessen my terror. It did not lessen my feelings of discomfort and what the heck am I doing? But I had an inner drive at that point to say, this is what I have to do. Making that leap, coming to the US, we didn't have jobs. We didn't bring anything with us, Bar we had five suitcases and four carry-ons. That held our whole life. that we had gathered over 40 years brought that over in those suitcases. And I remember the first few days of being in the U.S. being utterly confusing and utterly exhilarating. I have never been so driven, so compelled to action, so ready to get going as I was in those first few months of moving to the U.S. Because I think as humans we work over decades and years to get to a position of comfort. And once we get to that comfort position, we naturally become a little bit complacent. I think moving to the US forced me out of that complacency that I myself had gotten myself into. As a result, I now continually force myself to be put into difficult, complicated, unnecessarily horrible conditions. And I say that jokingly, as in, (laughs) I, I, I don't enjoy pain, but I do like to feel a sense of discomfort at all times. And when I say discomfort, I use discomfort as a means of driving myself forward. And I think that every time I do that, I'm building up my own inner resilience when it comes to things that go wrong. And I see this happen every day when I'm comparing my responses to other people's responses in that I'm pretty unflappable. I don't get stressed. I don't get worried. I don't react in ways that others would. And I think that's because I have developed an inner resilience by never getting too comfortable, by always being driven to actually get something done.
0: Hmm. Well, that really sounds like what resilience is. And it really feels like you, not only do you live this as a part of your profession, but it's who you are as a person.
1: I think that's exactly it. And I think that's what makes good risk and resilience leaders are people who live those values every single day as part of their daily life. Because then when you talk to a senior leadership team, you are speaking from a position of authenticity. Mm -hmm. You are speaking with integrity. So even you, Vanessa, you left a Fortune 40 to start your own business. That's risk-taking. That's being an entrepreneur that's leaping off the cliff and not knowing what's going to be underneath you when you, when you leap. Right. And I think that signals to people in our industry, holy heck, this is a person who really does believe in what they do. And I like it. Yeah. You, know, you, you have a mindset that people are attracted to because they say, okay, she's living it. She's not telling me how I should be taking risks. She's actually out there taking risks. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I think that's the messaging that makes people like yourself so incredibly valuable to our industry.
0: Well, with that being said, our listeners want to know where to find you. And here's why, for our listeners, um i've had, I've had a chance to know Jacinth for I think maybe two or three years now. and um, there are very few leaders that have made an impact on my life, but I had three in a row when I moved to Charlotte, and Jacinth was one of them. And so if you're looking to stay in contact with a real leader in this industry, someone who really understands, um, someone who has that C-suite experience but can also help to lead the organization across, and one that has really amazing podcasts
1: and some awesome (laughs) stories.
0: Um, I definitely, definitely, definitely recommend that you stay in touch. So with that being said, where can our listeners find you?
1: So if you wanted to listen to the podcast, it's available on all major platforms such as iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, um, Spotify. So it's all there. The podcast is there. It's called Risk Tree. If you wanted to go direct to the source, there's the Risk Tree podcast website. So that's RiskTreePodcast dot com. And if you want to reach out to me directly, you can always find me on LinkedIn, or you can email me at Jacinth at RiskTreePodcast dot com.
0: Well, there you have it. Thanks for tuning in to Business Resilience Decoded with the Disaster Recovery Journal and as Asbolus Advisors. Subscribe, share, download, and look out for future episodes. Business Resilience Decoded is produced and edited by John Seals. For more information, visit drj.com decoded and as slash decoded. Write to us on Twitter at drdecoded.